All right. Well, this morning we're going to answer some questions. And uh, like I said last week, uh, I categorize all the questions according to theological topic. Everything left over gets stuck in the miscellaneous part at the end of the list. And so we're going to go from the bottom of the list up now in the miscellaneous category. So we will be all over the place uh, looking at different things. And the first question is actually a question that has five parts. And uh, it's one of the sneaky things people do when they ask questions. You know, I have a question and then they ask question after question. It's really a a multiple questions with multiple issues. Uh, And I just want you to know that uh, some of these questions bother me quite a bit. They don't bother me because they're questions. I like the questions, but they bother me because of their uh, not the question itself, but the issues they raise are are wicked um they're deceptive and so if i've kind of lapsed into some sort of you know sarcasm scoffing um ridicule uh you just have I me mean, cut me some slack because uh these things eke me so the first question which ekes me uh is is about this my teachers at school say that the earth and universe are millions of years old which contradicts the Bible and implies that death came before sin. Is this right? Absolutely. The Bible says there was no death before sin, but that death came as a result of sin. Evolution says things evolved and death occurred for millions and millions of years. And then man finally evolved and lived and died. So evolution is antithetical to the Bible. Both of them cannot be true. The Bible says God spoke everything into existence in six literal 24-hour periods. And as a result of sin, death came. Second part. Are all the dating methods wrong? No. Only those ones that say the earth is millions of years old. The ones that say it's 6,000 years old are accurate. The dating methods are very complicated. And there's a lot of different ways that scientists date things. You know, you get a tree, you cut it down, and you can count the rings and one ring per year, and you've got the age of the tree. That's not a problem. Uh, But when you start dealing with other things and you have to make assumptions, then some things aren't as clear. And all I'm going to do is address one common popular dating method, which is totally bogus, carbon-14. Carbon-14 dating is sometimes accurate and usually not. Now, the first thing you need to know is how carbon-14 what it is and how the whole process works. So let's just explain that. I'll try and explain that in, in easy. And I know that some of these things you may be, you know, be going over your head, but I'll try and put it down into just, you know, kindergarten language. Carbon 14 is a radioactive substance. So we'll just stop there. What I mean by radioactive is, is that it's kind of like a substance. It's kind of like a battery that you have. And after you use batteries in a flashlight, let's say eventually they wear out. That the strength of the the energy in that battery slowly wears out. Well, that's how radioactive substances are. They start off at a certain strength and then they wear out. And that wearing out process, that decaying process, is called a half-life. What that means is this, is, is let's say you have some some... plutonium or uranium or carbon-14 or any other radioactive substance, and you measure it and you see how long it takes to go from the strength it is now to half of its strength. That's called a half-life. That is the age or the time it takes for that thing to decay from full strength to half strength is called a half-life. Just like a battery. Um, you put batteries in a flashlight, you turn it on, and if you could measure the the full length of that battery and where at the half point was of the battery being halfway worn out, that would be the battery's half-life. 
Okay, so everything has a half-life, including carbon-14. Now, where does carbon-14 come from? Carbon-14 comes from the atmosphere. When rays from the sun collide with nitrogen, it creates carbon-14. And carbon-14 then floats down from the atmosphere, lands on plants, and then plants absorb it. Then animals eat the plants, and then animals have it. So anything organic that is plant or animal has carbon-14 in it, either because it's a plant that has absorbed it or an animal that has eaten a plant or an animal that's eaten an animal that's eaten a plant. Okay? So if you're going to do carbon-14 dating, you need to have some sort of animal or plant material that has not been tampered with, that has had no new carbon reintroduced or taken out of it by any way. So what the scientists do is they take a sample, and hopefully it's an undefiled sample. They take it in their lab. They measure it and say, oh, it has this much carbon-14 in it, which tells us what? Well, the first thing they have to do is they have to assume how much carbon-14 it had it in the beginning, which they don't know. But they guess. And then they say, well, we think it used to be this much. Now the carbon-14 is here. Therefore, it's this many years old. Secondly, um, when you realize that carbon-14 takes these guesses, then its, its reliability becomes shaky from the very outset. First, you have to assume that whatever you're testing had a certain amount of carbon-14 in, in it to begin with. And no one knows that. Secondly, you have to assume that everything has continued just as it always has continued. You may have heard this big phrase before, that uniformitarian evolution. And you may think, what is that? Uh, you know what's something that's uniform? If I say, oh, this is very uniform, it means it's very similar or it's the same. It's consistent. Uniformitarian means something that is consistent. Uniformitarian evolution is something that is consistently evolved. In other words, if you believe in uniformitarian evolution, you believe that things have pretty much always happened as they have always happened, that there has been nothing bizarre, nothing incredible, nothing massive that has has destroyed or confused or changed everything. Everything has been consistent process with no changes. Uniformitarian evolutionists believe that is true. Of course, the Bible says that's wrong. So that means you assume that carbon-14 has always entered the atmosphere at the same rate forever. And another guess, which this is just a contradiction of the Bible, because we know the Bible tells us some things different. And so I just want to show you that, that certain things have happened in history which are not uniform. Not only have we had things like meteors hit the earth, large meteors, if you've ever gone to... to uh, um, Arizona and see the big, you know, what is a two mile crater there? That's not usual. And that would stir up a lot of uh, atmospheric um, activity. Not only that, you have the flood. Not only that, you have the ice age, which followed the flood. And so all of these things affected the atmosphere in a rather radical way. But turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And I just want to point out a couple things to you. Genesis 2, verses 4 and 5. This is the record of the sixth day um, of creation and and uh, Genesis two, four and five is just recording kind of what happened um, after everything was created at the uh, during the sixth day. It says this is the account, verse four of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, notice who made them. They didn't evolve and they didn't come from the Big Bang. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the field and no plant of the field had yet been had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And so here, when you look at verse Verse five, you see that, you know, there was no rain, but notice how things did get watered. Verse six, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. That's how things got watered back then. A mist came up from the ground and watered. There was no rain falling from the sky. Now turn over to Genesis seven. This is the account of the flood. During Noah's time, verse 10 of Genesis seven. And it came about after seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. 
And in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. Now, just stop there. Notice that, uh, you know, in all the movies and, you know, all the pictures or a lot of people have this thought that, you know, you have this giant ark, this huge uh, wooden, you know, crate looking thing sitting out there in a desert area. And all of a sudden it starts raining and it rains and rains and rains and then it floats up. But notice what the text says. It says the fountain gates, the floodgates of the earth burst open so what happened is is god caused all of this water that was inside the earth to burst forth not only that the text goes on to say and the floodgates of the sky or the windows of heaven were opened which implies that they used to be closed So in other words, there used to be no rain on the earth, but a mist covered the earth. But at the flood, God burst open the floodgates of the deep and he opened the heavens and caused them to collapse on the earth. It's the first time it rained and it rained in a serious way. Now, what does this mean that the floodgates of the heaven were open? Well, Many believe that the earth had a very dense canopy of vapor or water around it, like a water shell in the atmosphere around the earth. This would account for there being no rain until this time and would explain the floodgates of the heaven being opened up or the windows of the heaven being opened up. Now, you have to say, well, why would God do this? And what was the whole purpose of this? Well, what you need to realize is this, is that the earth before the flood is nothing like our planet right now. The whole earth was covered in thick, dense vegetation. The whole earth. North Pole, South Pole. The whole earth was covered with vegetation. Now, how can you grow plants up in the North Pole? Well, there's only one way you can do it is if it's warmer up there, right? Well, how would it be warmer up there? Because this big canopy covered the earth. The sun would shine through this water vapor or this water canopy, and it would circulate and create like in a greenhouse effect over this whole planet of the earth. So if this was true, what would you expect to find? You would expect to find a lot of plant vegetation all over the world. The question is, do we find that? Well, it just so happens if you go under the polar cap and go to the bottom of the ocean, what do you find there? Petrified forests. Now, where did they get there? How did they get there? How did those forests grow Under the polar caps, under the water. Read Genesis. It tells you. See, I lapse into sarcasm. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Hello. You just ask people that. You know, you never hear this advertised either. Because this totally, totally attacks the theory of evolution. So things like this, you just don't hear about because, you know, we don't know how to explain that. Maybe a meteorite hit the earth and rotated it. There's one. Yeah, knocked it off its axis. And 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 they say that to try and say there was a huge cladokismic, you know, thing that happened. Well, yeah, we know what it is with the flood. Okay, all those trees petrified under the water, under the polar caps, did not grow underwater. They grew on the land in a warm climate. And the climate then became cold and has stayed cold ever since. Is there any other evidence? You know, I don't know. uh, How many of you drive cars? Just raise your hand. Okay, now listen to this. Where does gasoline come from? From Chevron. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but where do they get it from? From the refineries. Where do they get it from? For the Iraq. You know, whatever from the oil fields, from out on the coast, under the ground, they drill real deep into the ground and they tap into crude oil. And where did that crude oil come from? From dead animals, dead animals. Think of all the gasoline the world has used 
is using and will use. Where did all those dead animals come from? I mean, we're talking a lot of dead animals, aren't we? Think of all the gasoline that we use just in this country alone. You're pumping dead animals into your tank. Every time, every time you change your oil, every time you get gas, you know, every time you put some petroleum jelly on your lips, dead animals. And don't let anybody tell you any different. They'll tell you, well, yeah, it's decaying, you know, animal bodies. And where did those come from? Well, let's not talk about that. How did all those dead animals get under the surface of the earth? Did the animals all say, okay, let's dig random pits everywhere. (laughs) Millions of us will jump into those pits and we'll pay other animals to bury us. Is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. What happened is there was a worldwide flood. And there was vegetation all over the earth and just millions and probably billions of animals all over the planet. And then what happened is, is the flood came, the fountains of the earth burst forth, the heavens collapsed, and it stirred it all up into these pockets. The animals, a lot of them ran to different places because they were mobile. The plants were ripped up. They were buried in pockets, and the animals were buried in pockets. And now we have cars that run off of gasoline. Do you think God knew that people were going to use crude oil for gasoline? Of course he did. Of course he did. It's part of his plan for energy. But do you know what the biggest energy source is in the world? The biggest natural energy source that we have, you know, apart from the sun, is coal. You know where coal comes from? Plants. Plants. Whenever you take plants, and you take those plants, and you crush them, apply heat to them, smother them with sediment and water and let them compost a little bit, you get coal. And I'm telling you, the earth has lots of coal. It's got lots of coal. You know, when you dig for oil, do you know where you you drill for oil? You drill through sedimentary rock, which has been laid down by floodwaters. The same thing with coal. Do you know that the biggest coal deposit on earth is in Poland? There's an estimated 130 billion tons of coal in the one deposit in Poland. 130 billion tons. Now, just to kind of stretch your mind out on this, how much vegetation did that take to just do that one little deposit? Little deposit. It's this. If you have a cubic feet of coal, it takes just for a cubic feet of one cubic foot of coal, one foot by one foot by one foot, 10 cubic feet of vegetation. So if you want to find out how many tons of vegetation took to make the one coal deposit in Poland take 130 billion Multiply that times 2,000, and then you'll get how much vegetation. That is a huge number. I did some a little more research, found out about just how much coal is on the earth. There's an estimated 984,553,000,000 tons of coal buried in the earth around the world. A ton, remember, is 2,000 pounds. So all you need to do is take... 984 billion, 553 million, and multiply that times 2,000, and you get 1.97 times 10 to the 15th. That is, add 15 zeros on it, pounds of vegetation. I'm telling you, that is a lot of lettuce. <laughs> and how did all that stuff get buried under the earth? How you know, They find it in underneath the polar caps. They find it in... Places all buried, uh, big, huge coal deposits. You know where diamonds come from? Yeah, there it is. Vegetation before the time of Noah. Do you know right now all of these lights here come from uh, the power plant in Burbank? And you know it's a coal-fired power plant. So right now, all the electricity, if you live in Burbank, you are enjoying from plants that grew before the time of Noah. I mean, we need to get real here. And quit getting duped by the world. The Bible tells us the truth. 
the whole earth was covered with vegetation. There was a lot of animals and they all got wiped out by the flood 6,000 years ago. And that's the way it is. Now you think, well, Jack, what about carbon 14? Well, let's get back to that. Okay, so the entire surface of the earth is covered with vegetation, which is absolutely certain based off the coal and oil deposits, right? Because all those animals that were pumping into our car had to eat something, right? And there is a lot of oil, which means there's a lot of animals and they needed a lot to eat. And they all lived right before the flood and were alive before the flood. So how does all this fit in? Here it is. How could all of those animals exist without the plants? Well, they couldn't. How could all the plants grow all over the earth? Well, they couldn't unless there was a water vapor, some sort of canopy over the earth. And how would that affect the carbon-14 process? Well, if carbon-14 comes through the atmosphere when nitrogen molecules are bombarded by rays from the sun, then what would happen if there was a thick canopy of water vapor around the earth? It would either stop that process altogether or it would severely diminish it because those that carbon 14 would be trapped in the atmosphere. Then what you would expect is anything that was more than 5000 years old since the time of the flood. If you measured it with carbon 14 dating techniques would all of a sudden skyrocket and appear to be millions of years old because it would hardly have any of any any carbon 14 in it which is exactly what we would expect based off of what the Bible tells us. Now, if you, even if all that is wrong, even if the water canopy thing is wrong, the Bible is not wrong. And listen to this. The guy who invented carbon 14, WF Libby said that carbon 14 dating, carbon 14 dating is not to be trusted to date anything before the first Egyptian dynasty. And you know when the first Egyptian dynasty came about? It came about 5,000 years ago, after the flood and after the Tower of Babel. Just like the Bible says. Not only that, carbon-14 dating has been used to date all sorts of things. You know, they find a woolly mammoth, you know, buried in the, you know, ice up in Siberia. And then they do carbon-14 dating of its tusk. And then they do carbon-14 dating of some hair in its ear. And you know what? The tusk is 100,000 years old. The ear is, you know, 12,000 years old. (laughs) What do you think? The tusk stood there, you know, for 90,000 years waiting for the body to grow around it. It's foolish. It's not accurate. It's been proven. Sometimes the margins of error are 99% or worse. And you ask yourself, well, Jack, then how come all the books and all the secular schools and all the colleges always talk about carbon-14 this and carbon-14 that? Because they hate God. That's why. Because they don't want to come into submission to the word of God. They won't have God telling them what to do, directing their morality and how they are to live. And what they don't want to think about is that judgment is coming. And so in order to relax while they're indulging in their sin, they deny God, they make excuses, and they, like ostriches, stick their head into scientific holes. But you know what? They aren't even scientific. Because for something to be scientific, it has to have two criteria. Do you know what those are? Measurability and repeatability. Now, can you measure evolution? No. As a matter of fact, every tenet of evolution has been proven wrong. You can only you can only measure the evidence, the physical evidence we have and see what it fits best with. And you know what it fits best with the Bible. That's amazing. Now, if you want to look at some scientific dating methods, scientific, measurable, repeatable scientific dating methods, here's the ones you want to look at. These are the ones you never hear about, because most of these all say the world is six thousand years old. Ah, amazing. They're called geochronometers, geo meaning earth, chronometer, meaning clock or time clock, a geochronometer, an earth time clock. Give you a few examples. When they were going to the moon and land on the moon the first time, some of you remember, I remember I was pretty young then, but um, I remember sitting around the TV and they were going to land on the moon. It was really exciting. And do you remember that first moon landing craft, the spacecraft? You remember it had these like giant Frisbee things, uh, you know, big, big disks to land on the moon. Do you know why that is? Well, let me tell you what happened. My uncle worked on that, so I know about this. Um, my, uh, 
what, 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 what happened is this. They, just, they, they measure the space dust in the atmosphere, and they know just from the earth that constantly there is space dust falling into our atmosphere from outer space. And they know how much space dust is floating around out there. And they know the gravity of the moon. They know that there's no wind and no water and no erosion. So they calculated. They said, well, we know, you know, the earth is or the moon is so many millions of years old. And therefore, we know since the rate of space dust is constant and measurable that the earth is or the moon is going to have six feet of space dust on the surface of it. So they developed this big moon landing thing with these giant discs so that it will sit on top of the dust and so they land on the moon he gets out the one big step for mankind and goes "Uh, two and a half three inches just like the bible said if you figure out the amount of space dust and go back it just happens to be the figures the moon is six thousand years old amazing here's another one you take uh The magnetic field around the earth, there is a magnetic field around the earth. And this is a very constant thing because the magnetic field decays and has a half life. You know what that is. The magnetic field around the earth has been measured for over a hundred years. And they've taken all the measurements, calculated them all out. And they can see that the magnetic field has decayed, lessened, been depleted from salt water. It's a complicated process over a period of time in a very straight line. So what you can do is, is you can extrapolate forward and find out when the magnetic field is so weak, the earth is in big trouble, or you can go backwards, extrapolate backwards and calculate backwards. Well, if you calculate backwards and you just go on that straight line that we've observed is constant, You can't make the earth more than 10,000 years old. Do you know why? Because the magnetic field would be so great that it would begin to heat up the earth. If you went back just 100,000 years, it would, the, the magnetic field would be so great that it would heat up the earth. Life could not live on the planet and it would separate the earth's mantle from its core. This is scientific, measurable, repeatable data. And just so happens that it agrees with what the Bible tells us. You can do things like look at mountain erosion. You can look at the population of the earth. There's all these kinds of geochronometers that you can look at. And, you know, they show you that the Bible is true. But, you know, the Bible's true even if they don't. But, see, you don't hear about those things. You don't hear about the whale, you know, that was found buried under multiple layers of strata. You know, they tell you those geology things. Have you ever seen those geology cards? You know, they have the pre-Cambrium strata, Cambrium strata, you know, all those different stratas. How many people have seen that? Do you know nowhere in the world, nowhere in the world are those layers in that order? Totally random. Totally guessed. That is totally fabricated. It's a farce. It's a lie. Do you know they found a whale... That was buried on its tail through many layers of strata. Now, do you think that whale just kind of stood there? (laughs) They found trees in different directions buried through many layers of strata, which tells you what? All the strata was laid down at one time by the flood, just like we would expect. Continuing, I don't want to get a bad grade, but I can't just believe a rock can give birth to a rock. That's right. You can't if you're a Christian. But they make it sound so logical. You know what? You might just have to get a bad grade. When I was in college, I got bad grades for Jesus. I wrote papers refuting the idiocy of what the teachers were. And then they'd always give me, you know, D minuses just so I could barely pass. I don't care. Get a D for Jesus. But right, you're right. You can't believe the Bible and the creation account and believe in evolution in millions and billions of years. They are mutually exclusive. They are antithetical views. If evolution is true, the Bible is false. The writers of scripture are liars. Jesus is a liar. And that's more important than your grades. Listen, evolution is a religion for those who don't want to submit to God and don't want to think that judgment is coming. That's all. 
It's a religion. You know, you go to your teacher and ask them, you know, so where are all this, these you, this trillions of tons of vegetation get buried under the surface of the earth and coal deposits? And where would all those animals come from that we put in our car? <laughs> ask them this, where did all the matter come from the universe? Well, uh, we don't know. So you mean to tell me you're, you're basing your eternal life on a guess? That's exactly what they're doing. And whenever you say, I don't know, but I am going to believe what you're saying is, this is my religion. Don't tell me you're science and I'm, I'm faith when your whole premise is based off of faith that you don't even know. You don't even know how everything got started. I mean, you, you look at the law of second. No, we don't even go there. All right. Anyways, here's a place you can go. See, this is what happens when I start getting on this. All right. Here's a place. Write this down. You can get information here. This is a source that you can go to to get all kinds of information. Any question you want, books, tapes, videos, whatever. Um, www.answersingenesis.org. And uh, they have a great magazine called Creation Magazine, and uh, my family subscribes to it, and it's great. We all read it. We love it. It talks about cool, neat things that are real, are measurable, are repeatable, things you never hear about, which totally undo evolution. They have a scientific journal. If you're a real brainy person, you don't care about pictures, you just want stats and data and carbon-14, rubidium, strontium dating and all that stuff. You can get their scientific journal and it has all the calculations and, you know, all that stuff. And you can do that. You can go on the website. They have a huge database of all kinds of articles, complex and simple, um, that will pretty much answer any question you have. And so go there and get more questions answered. If you want moving on question number five, what is the Bible's teaching on birth control? The Bible has no direct teaching on birth control, but it does address pregnancy. It does say that life begins in the womb, that life is sacred, that children are one of the many blessings from the Lord, that the Lord grants people the ability to have children, that children, um, should be trained up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that they are a treasure, that killing people, whether in the womb or outside the womb, is murder. Next question. Is it a sin to play the lotto? I almost didn't answer this one. I didn't want to get in trouble. But is it a sin to play the lotto? Well... And, uh, you know, I'm going to, this is not going to satisfy some of you, but I'm going to tell you what the scriptures say. Some Christian would say, absolutely, yes, gambling is a sin. Okay. Well, there's a problem with a statement like that is because the Bible doesn't address gambling. It doesn't say, you know, thou shall not gamble. Thou shall not take any risks. Thou shall not do anything not knowing the future. <laughs> well, then we couldn't do anything. You know, gambling is an interesting thing because we do take risks and we don't know the future. Now, some people will say things, you know, they go to a text like, you know, look at the soldiers who, you know, cast lots and, and, you know, divided Jesus' garments and look at those wicked pagans, how they're, you know, dividing the Lord's clothing and gambling for it. Well, the problem is, is in Acts chapter one, they cast lots to choose the next apostle. Other people say, no, gambling is a form of stealing. Because really when you gamble, you're taking something that doesn't belong to you from someone else. But you know, it's voluntary. Everybody puts their stuff out there voluntary. So that, that doesn't really work. I did a computer search and I have on my computer 1300 theological works. I searched them all for gambling and I sat there for a long time and looked at every single occurrence of gambling that I could find and I could not find one person who did an exegesis of any text showing why gambling is wrong but many people said oh it's a sin and they lump it with adultery and you know just all kinds of things that are clearly condemned and so you wonder well how do they do that well let me just give you some of the ways people argue against gambling even though gambling isn't addressed specifically there are principles in the Bible which need to be considered which would regulate gambling and your possible participation or non-participation in it. 
And here are some of our, some of them argue against gambling from a work ethic standpoint. They say, they reason this way. The Bible teaches we are to work for what we have. And so gambling is an attempt to get what you haven't worked for. Therefore it is wrong. Okay. The problem is, is what about getting a bonus at work? What about somebody giving you a gift and kickbacks? coupons some of the wives are going don't take my coupons from me you're having double coupon month you know you didn't work for that you cannot use the coupon okay um and so you you have to wonder whether that's you know all that definitive here's another one some people argue against gambling from a stewardship standpoint you know it's not good stewardship to gamble god has given us certain things and we need to use those things for his glory like go out to dinner to the movie to a ball game you know what do you mean um Are you saying that we shouldn't do anything fun, any sort of luxuries we shouldn't have, no cell phones, you know, bare minimum, live in a very small, isolated place and eat rice on the floor with water (laughs) and only have one plastic cup that we wash each time, no soap, just with water. You know, I mean, how, you know, how frugal do you get to be good stewards for the glory of the Lord? The problem is the Bible says God has given us all things freely to enjoy and he's made some rich and he's been some poor and we are to be thankful for what god has given us we are to be generous with what we have whether we are poor whether we are rich and god loves a cheerful giver so that doesn't work all that good either some people argue against gambling from a holiness standpoint. They say, well, you know, gambling is something the world indulges in. And so as Christians, we can indulge in it because the world indulges it. Well, so do you have a TV? Do you have a car? A cell phone? And do you go out to dinner? What does it mean to be separate from the world? Does it mean not doing anything the world might ever do? Well, we'll be in trouble. If that was the case, no, that's not what it means. Worldliness or being like the world means participating in any of the deeds or behaviors or thoughts that the world behaves in or thinks about, which are contrary to the mandates of scripture. You are to be separate from those things. The Lord says and not engage in them. That is worldliness. So that doesn't work very good either. Here's another one. You can argue against gambling from a statistics point of view. Look at Las Vegas. Highest divorce rate. Look at all the prostitution and thievery and carnality and wickedness. I mean, do you think Las Vegas is some sort of holy place? And it's a gambling place. We can't be like Las Vegas. Well, you know, they go out to dinner in Las Vegas. And they go to the show and they drive cars and use cell phones and have TVs and homes. So we can't use any of those because they do that in Las Vegas. You see, then we're, that doesn't work very good either. I think one of the greatest arguments against gambling is that it is fueled by greed and covetousness. Greed and covetousness. The person who gambles is carried away by his own lust, his own greed, his own desire to have more. It is a sign of not being content with the Lord have you. And even when I say that, what about, so that means we just be stagnant, never try for a better job. I mean, you know, there's problems. But most gamblers have a, you know, serious gamblers have this insatiable lust that drives them to make very foolish decisions. You know, they gamble away their cars and their houses and their retirement funds and and everything they have for the possibility of getting more. Ask yourself, does gambling show prudence? Does gambling show discretion? Does it make logical business sense? Is it fueled by greed? Is it fueled by lust? Is it fueled by covetousness and lack of contentment? Now, I don't gamble. I mean, there was a couple years ago, we were going through Vegas and and we purposely stayed in the outskirts of town on late Saturday night. And then we drove into town on Sunday morning when everybody was asleep and hung over. And so we just went through some of the places. But we went to this place there and they had these slot machines there. And I said, hey, kids, watch this. I want to show you what gambling is all about. So I get this quarter and I walk over the machine. I stick it in there and I pull the lever and do the slot machine. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I hope, not, I hope no lights go off. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, 
And like usual, nothing happened. I said, see, I just wasted a quarter. And we walked on and we had a discussion about it. Then I told him sometimes, you know, I said, dad could have put that quarter in there and all these lights could have went off and all these quarters would have gushed out. And then we would have been here a long time as dad lost all that money. But I said, (laughs) I said, but gambling, basically you're taking your money and you're, you're risking it on something that is very risky. It's just not wise. Now, I have a brother-in-law who periodically on my birthday sends me a lottery ticket because he knows I'm a pastor and he knows I would never buy one. <laughs> and so he sends me a lottery ticket and, and, uh, you know, I, I get, I get the lottery ticket and, and I, you know, do you think I just throw it in the trash? <laughs> I don't, <laughs> you know, $120 million. <sighs> think okay all right lord this is your chance um to bless me with abundant grace Uh, and uh you know but it hasn't been god's will yet that i win but bottom line is this the bible specifically does not address gambling but it does give us a lot of principles and if you as a christian feel like you can obey all the commandments of the bible not get carried away by lust, greed, discontent, you know, whatever. And you can gamble. Then, you know, more power to you. But I can't. And uh, I can't tell you the Bible says absolutely. All I could do is tell you what I just told you and I did. So let's move on. Okay. Do animals have eternal life? <laughs> no. <laughs> animals are not people. They don't have eternal life. Animals were not created um, so they could occupy heaven. They were created so men could enjoy them, use them, eat them. Make, you know, pump their cars full of them. But evolutionary thought has so distorted people's view about animals that they treat animals a lot of times better than people. And this is a consequence of evolution. Don't think evolution is just some theory. It brings people to think that, listen, I can't be mean to my cat. You know, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a cat, probably. And uh, he, he evolved into me or whatever. But let me just give you some tests here. And these are going to be sobering on purpose. If somebody came up to you and said, you have to choose one of these two options, which will you choose? You either feed your dog, whom you love, your well-trained dog, your pet, your man's best friend, feed your dog, and let somebody you don't know starve to death, or you take the food that you would have fed your dog, give that to this person you don't know who's starving to death, and let your dog starve to death. What would you choose? Well, I tell you, there's people all over the world right now starving to death. <laughs> That's mean, isn't it? <laughs> so are you laying a guilt trip on us? I'm just trying to make a point. If we took if we took all the money we spend on our pets just in the United States alone, we could cure the hunger problem in the world, no problem. Let's say let's give me another example. Let's say during whale watching season out here off the coast of Southern California, some whalers showed up and started slaughtering whales. Cutting them up into pieces, boiling down their blubber for nice quality whale oil, selling their meat for, you know, whale burgers, blue whale burgers. Saving their bones so they could, you know, sell them to museums. What do you think would happen? People would freak. Don't kill the walls. There were people out there, they would just absolutely freak. They would scream with anger, we're killing the whales, the whales! And and I'm not exaggerating here. You know I'm not exaggerating here. (laughs) And then every day in the paper for two or three weeks would be front page, whale killers being tried, you know? (laughs) Whale slaughterers found guilty of, you know, 50 counts of whale murder. Listen, you know what the difference is between killing a whale and a fly? Nothing. Nothing. It's just a size thing. They're animals. They are not people. They are not people. 
All the whales are not going to be in heaven. Yet every day, thousands of babies are slaughtered in their mother's womb and no one says anything. The only time you get any publicity on the front page of the paper for baby murder is is to make derogatory comments about people who oppose abortion. Look at these religious fanatics. They're they're trying to take away women's choice. They're they're freedom to have control over their own bodies. Those wretched, unloving, intolerable, divisive Christian rachas. And that's on the front page. And it just goes to show that evolution has consequences because it has reduced people into equal animals. And it's put, just like some people, you'd go out there, you have a bunch of ants in your kitchen, you get out your ant spray and just slaughter them all. <laughs> well, some people feel like doing that to babies is just fine. Kill them all. But the Bible says one human has more value than all the animals combined because humans are created in the image of God. They have eternal souls. And so, no, they don't go to heaven. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that God's not going to, you know, maybe by his grace, resurrect your favorite cat or dog. They got run over. But I want you to know if if all the animals that have ever lived, get to be in heaven, it's going to be a tight place. (laughs) And, you know, you say, well, you know, I I just want my dogs there because, you know, I love my dogs. Well, some people like everything. They like Gila monsters and, you know, all kinds of animals. Do all the flies and gnats and bugs and trees and, you know, everything get to go? No. See, I get hit. Okay, let's move on. Question number eight. Are Adam and Eve in heaven? I think so. I think so. Um, if you remember what happened, God made them perfect. They knew God. So they had a relationship with God already. God gave them a regulation. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. Then they violated that. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully ate. They heard God coming. The sound of God's voice is, scared them. They sewed fig leaves together. They hid in the brush because they realized they were naked and they were shamed because they had eaten, the, eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they knew they had violated the command of God. And so they were scared. And what did God do? God then killed animals and took their skins and made clothing for them. And no, I don't think those animals would be in heaven. And um, he, he made a provision. He caused there to be a blood sacrifice and made a provision from the blood sacrifice to cover their nakedness. And they received that from the Lord. And all we know that from the Bible, that all of those sacrifices are a picture of Christ, who is the once for all sacrifice. So I think that Adam and Eve, yes, are going to be in heaven because they believed in God. They trusted in God. They received God's provision. And then they tried to follow the Lord. Though imperfectly nine. Can you be a Christian Time's out. No. Uh, can you be a Christian and not be involved in government? Was it wrong to oppose Hitler, Stalin, and Saddam Hussein? God gave government to restrain evil. Did he not? Oh, let's look at these. So, the answer to the first part of the question is no, it is not wrong to abstain or be involved in government when the government gives you permission to abstain or not be involved. For instance, you have to be involved in government when you drive because you have to obey the law of the government concerning speed limits and stop signs and what side of the road to drive on. So, yes, you have to be involved in government. But there are times when you have options to be involved. You can, you know, you have the option of running for president or senator or congresspersons or, you know, city council or whatever. You have the option, you know, to be a mailman, a police officer or whatever. Those are government things that you have options. So, yeah, you don't have to be involved in that. We don't have to vote because the government doesn't mandate that we have to vote. Now. When you read in the Gospels, you encounter all sorts of people involved in government, politicians, soldiers, rulers, and Jesus doesn't say, you, quit your job. You know, when the centurion comes up, he goes, what are you doing working for the government as a soldier? Cut it out. 
No, he doesn't say that. He also doesn't tell his disciples, okay, let's get involved in politics. You know, let's lobby and let's uh, try and make a political statement here. Like the zealots. He doesn't tell them that either. But let's say you're a police officer or a court clerk or you know, still the city building inspector. We'll pray for you. It's fine. <laughs> if you have a job like that, it's okay. It's great. Now, the reason we pay taxes is to support those things. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I drive home, I like driving home on smooth roads. And you know, what if, what if everybody was responsible for their own two by two foot piece of road? That would be a bummer, wouldn't it? Some people would have really perfect ones. Other ones would be dirt and, you know, but so it's nice. Everybody pays taxes. We drive around. We enjoy. We give taxes to the government. The government gives us services that we enjoy. Some we don't enjoy. That's how it works. Now, what about politics? Is there anything wrong with sitting on the city council or being mayor or congressman or senator or president? No. As long as you don't have to sin to get there, sin to stay there, or sin as you function in that position. Of course, if you're sinning to get there or stay there or function there, you can't do that. Christians cannot sin. They're commanded to obey God at all times. They can never compromise. But you need to be clear if you get involved in politics. What are your motives? Why? What do you expect to accomplish by being involved in government and doesn't match up with what the Bible says? Are you involved to be a representative to the people of your community? Is there anything wrong with that? No. Is your motive to make a change for yourself? Or is your motive to make people more moral on their way to hell? Or is your motive to get rich? What is your motive? That needs to be addressed. And your methods need to be addressed too. How do you get there? How do you function there? You know, if the government says this is your job description, you have to submit to that job description. I don't care if you like it or not. If you volunteer for that, you submit. So your methods and motives must be in line with the word of God. And if they are, fine. Be involved in government. If the government gives you places where you don't have to be involved, Fine, don't be involved. The second part of the question is this. Was it wrong to oppose Hitler, Stalin, and Saddam Hussein? I think they're saying, is it wrong for governments to oppose them? Uh, Because there's a difference between me opposing the government personally and my government opposing another government. That's two different, huge different things. Let me just give you some big old data here. And you're thinking, Jack, it's already, I know it is. Just chill out. Um, We'll get there. I made him do this in the first service. It's just the way it is. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 17, 24 through 27, that Peter, he and Peter needed to pay taxes. Later in Matthew 22, verses 17 through 22, Jesus said they needed to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Caesar was a wicked, cruel, cruel, immoral beast he said give him taxes romans 13 1 tells you this let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities first timothy chapter 2 says we are to pray for those who are in authority so we can leave quiet and tranquil lives and godliness and dignity for the purpose of doing evangelism titus chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 says remind them that is you the church to be subject to rulers to authorities to be obedient to be ready for every good deed to malign no one to be uncondensious gentle showing every consideration for all men first peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 says submit yourself for the lord's sake to every human institution whether to king as one as an authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right for such is the will of god that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men so there is never a time when citizens Individual citizens can rise up against the government, except if they ask you to do something that is wrong or except if you live in America. Because we have a very unique constitution. This is what the Second Amendment says. Any well-regulated militia, not a term we use very much anymore, but let me just tell you what a militia is. A militia is an army of citizens who do one of two things. They are either citizens or either raised up to assist the army 
or to oppose it. Any well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In other words, our Constitution gives us the right to have guns and not just for gun collections and shooting cans in a dirt pit somewhere. We have the right to bear arms for the purpose of forming militias to maintain a free state. So if government took away the freedoms of the people, then those who understood the Second Amendment gave them the right to rise up against the government in order to maintain the free state and only for that purpose could do that under our law. Because our law gives us that permission. That is why, um, you know, you go back east to some places now and they even have militia meetings. Certain places have militia meetings. And you think, what's that? It's a whole bunch of people saying, okay, you know, we need to be ready in case our government goes too far. You know, a lot of people are pretty amazed that Americans have guns. In most countries, you don't have guns. I was in Russia, and I mentioned, you know, having a gun. You have a gun? No, I think I have six of them, you know. Um, And they're they're wondering, what do you do with all that? Shoot things, you know. (laughs) Not Burbank, but I said I can shoot targets at the firing range in Burbank, but that's it. Um, it's like, so now how many people have guns? I said, lots. I said, any country who invaded our country would be in serious trouble because there are a lot of rednecks <laughs> who have guns. And that's the whole purpose is not only do we have our military, but we have the right within our constitution to bear arms, to maintain a free state. But it's quite another thing for a, one government to raise up against another government and attack it. And that's, of course, what we have going on in Iraq. The question is, is it a violation of the word of God? Well, the government is able to decide who it's going to attack and whether they have just cause to do so. You know, what about all the 265 mass graves in Iraq? Forget the nuclear bomb. Was it right for our country to step in and protect thousands of people who are being slaughtered and buried in large trenches because of a tyrant? Well, I think so. And we did. It's just cause. So if you're in the volunteer for the military, the military says, hey, you're going to Iraq and you're going to fight because our government has decided to and you've submitted yourself to the government. You got to do that. Now, you need to understand, though, that all the governments that have ever existed exist there because of God. God puts all rulers into positions of power. So quit thinking about rulers as being assigned by popular vote and and the whims of men and by power hungry, whatever. Listen to what Jesus said to Pilate right before Pilate was asking him questions. Jesus wasn't responding. And in John 19 verses 10 and 11, Pilate says, you know, I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered and he's all bloody and beaten and skirted. Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless And it had been given to you from above. Let's get this straight. No one has any authority except that which is given to them from above. And I know we're running out of time. Write this down. Isaiah 40, 21 through 24. God says he sits above the vault of the earth. He sows rulers. He wipes them out. He blows on them. They're like stubble. The storm carries them away and they're gone. They're nothing to him. He can raise them up. He can take them down. If you read Daniel's chapter four and five, there is a phrase that appears over and over again. Do you remember what that phrase is? It's the phrase that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows sovereignty on whomever he wishes. Romans 13, one and two says there is no authority except from God. And those which are exist are established by God. Listen, God put Hitler in authority and Stalin and Saddam Hussein and every other wicked and every other good ruler who has ever lived for his purposes. And yes, governments are there for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. But that's not the only purpose. God raised up Israel to punish the Canaanites. The Israelites fell into sin. The kingdom divided. 
So then God raised up the Assyrians to punish the 10 northern tribes. Then he raised up Babylon to punish the Assyrians and then Babylon to punish the southern tribe. And then he raised up the Medo-Persian Empire to punish the Babylonian Empire. And then he raised up the Greeks to punish the Persians. And on and on it goes. And the Bible says God does that. He raises up pagan nations to punish other nations and godly nations to punish other nations. It's part of God's plan. So the answer to the question is, is it right to raise up against those? Yes. If it's part of the just cause of a government, I think it is. Now, if it's not, then that's a whole nother thing. But get this as we close. The most high God is the ruler over the realm of mankind and God bestows it on whomever he wishes. Don't forget that one thing, because that's the most important thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we were learning today and just pray that all these questions that were asked that we didn't get to answer. I pray that those people would seek out the pastors and elders here and get their questions answered because we want to give people the answers. We pray that we would live our lives in submission to and in thought of your word, that we would not be sucked into worldly ways of thinking and doing things. Father, help us to remember you are sovereign. You are in control. You have raised up leaders, both good and evil, for your purposes. And Father, we want to acknowledge that. We also want to do our part to be solid citizens, to uphold truth, to do what is right, and to be salt in the earth. Help us to find that balance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.